Take your Bibles, go to the book of Galatians, chapter number one. Brother Ron, Becky, thank you for that. I love those hymns and love the message behind it. I can't tell you I remember the first time I heard the story. I've heard it all my life. The message of the gospel has been a part of everything that I've grown up around. So I don't remember the first time I heard it, but I sure do look forward to hearing it again and again. And knowing the gospel is true and it's defensible in scripture and it's been delivered to us and we have a stewardship of that gospel in our hands in 2020. And we want to continue our series this morning on defining the gospel. Individual title of this message would be simply this, uh, removed from the gospel, removed from the gospel. There is a stark difference in the heart of someone who has a conviction and someone who's just being plain stubborn. And it may not be recognizable up front because they both look a lot alike. Neither one of them want to move off their point. But the stubborn person, it may just be stubborn because that's just their personality. And they can be stubborn over preferences. We can be stubborn over secondary things or even tertiary things that don't matter. And we're just stubborn to be stubborn. How many of you wives would confess that describes your husband? Okay, a few of you raised your hand. Wow, I wouldn't expect anybody to raise their hand on that. I didn't even look this direction because I didn't want to know if she raised her hand or not. So. Uh, but you know, I got somebody praising Jesus back here, all right? And, uh, but, but then a conviction. It is something that sets down deep in us and we are convinced of it. And because of what we're convinced of, no matter what comes, we can't be moved off of it. We have to stand there with firmness. Now, let me just say in opening this morning that conviction without love will bring destruction. That if our convictions aren't wrapped in and saturated in a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, a love for the people around us, a love for our family, a love for our church, then our convictions can run rampant and run over people. Um, And it becomes very indistinguishable from just a bullyish mentality. And some of Paul's language in chapter 1 of Galatians can be, uh, if read in modern day eyes, can be a little bit brutish or bullyish or that's a little bit over the top, don't you think, Paul? Don't you think you should be a little more open-handed? Now, I will say as a preacher of the gospel that I think we ought to be able to give an answer of the hope that lies in us. And there are some things in scripture that we just cannot be open-handed about. I'm very clear on what I believe about end times in my mind. I've studied it. I believe that the rapture of the church is a reality. And I believe the trumpet will sound. The church will be taken away. I believe there'll be seven years of tribulation and God will judge the nations. And all of that that you may be very familiar with here and, and even in our Constitution is spelled out in somewhat detail. And I have no problem with that. But here's the thing. Somebody that doesn't agree with me on the way that unfolds is not my enemy. They're my brother. We can disagree on that. But when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
We will broker no compromise. We must be very, very clear on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, conviction without love will leave us in a place of destruction. As a matter of fact, uh, Ephesians admonishes us to speak the truth in love that we may grow thereby. And it's in the speaking of truth and love that we grow. So let's take our Bibles and let's look at Galatians chapter 1. If you found your place, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. I'm going to begin in verse number 3, and I'm going to read for us through verse number 12, and so if you follow with me, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have, we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say, now I, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if yet I please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. It's revelation that has been given to us. Now, Lord, what we ask you for this morning is illumination. That, Lord, your Holy Spirit would shed light upon the text that we could understand it and apply it to our hearts. What I pray is the weightiness of the text this morning has to be delivered to your people that, Father, we would not be devoid of love as it's delivered. That, Father, it might be done in a way that would be pleasing to you and persuading of men. And, Lord, we'll praise you for your mercy and praise you for your sacrifice. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask all of this. Amen. You can be seated there. Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is not a city but a region. Um, it's the region of Galatia. And there would have been several churches in this region that this letter would have been going to. Uh, it is not written to one church, and so it's unique in that respect. Um, the church at Rome got a letter, uh, and we see individuals in the New Testament getting letters. The church at Ephesus got a letter. Timothy got a letter. Titus got a letter. Philemon got a letter. And these epistles were written directly to individuals or to one church body. Here it is written to a region of churches, and it was to be given to all of them because they were all dealing with the same false teaching. So Galatia is not a city, but a region. It's not a church, but churches. The issue that was the problem here, and, and we, could, we could go into the details, and this is not a Bible history class of when Paul wrote this, but probably sometime either right before or right after the Jerusalem Council. This is written to Galatia. 
But the issue that is addressing is Judaizers. Judaizers were those people from the Jewish uh, faith and those people that were Jews now converted to Christianity or had made a lip service of conversion to Christianity were now trying to bring in the traditions the keeping of the holy days, the observance of circumcisions and washings and all the different things that were necessary inside in the Jewish religion. I get my words tangled up here. Uh, inside of that belief system and all of those rituals that were there, the, the, the special days, the keeping of the Sabbath, all of these things, and they were bringing them in and trying to place them over top of Christianity. They were not seeing them as a shadow of what was coming and Christ being the fulfillment of everything that it had pointed to, but they were saying, no, these laws have to continue to be kept. They were compelling people who are believers now to not eat certain meats at certain times and to avoid the unclean things. And they were compelling believers to observe Sabbath days. And they were compelling believers now to be circumcised and saying, hey, you have to, you have to do all of these things if you're going to be a real Christian. And they were missing the point, and actually, Paul says, perverting the gospel. And so, this all is going on in this region. Now, let's make something very clear this morning. Salvation is by grace, through faith, plus nothing. It is not of your works or my works. It is not anything that I can earn, for if I earn it, then I boast in what I've accomplished. But Christ paid it all. Purchased for us. And we said it last week that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And we can settle in that fact that he has raised from the dead according to the scriptures. Now I would say to you this morning that clarity when it comes to these issues is of the utmost importance. Clarity cannot, we cannot afford to be ambiguous about what the gospel is. The gospel is not just praying a prayer. The gospel is not just making mental assent to some doctrinal statements. There is a transformation. Jesus called it being born again. It is a work of the Spirit and the heart of men to awaken Him from His deadness and to bring Him into light. It's a miracle. It is, it is a miracle. You know, and, and we look at the gospel and we, we can almost wrestle with this and we get, if we're not careful, because it is such a miracle that we reduce it down to statements and those statements deteriorate over time and we fail to put the emphasis back on what is truly being said. So I said earlier, clarity is important. I tried this joke out on a few people to see if it worked, all right? Clarity is important. Fella knocked on the door of a nice home in town and he was kind of down on his luck. And the, the owner of the house came to the door and he said, hey, I'm really having a hard time here. And he said, I was wondering if maybe you had some food you could spare or maybe some work I could do. And he goes, oh, absolutely. He said, around front, he said, my porch needs to be painted real bad. He said, I bought the paint for it. If you could paint the porch, I'll pay you for it. And he said, oh, that'd be great. And so uh, he said, well, let me know when you're done and come back. Two hours went by and the guy came back, knocked on the door again, and he said, I finished the porch. And he said, you finished? And he said, yeah. He said, I, I, I worked really hard at it. And he said, you got it done in two hours. And he said, actually, I put two coats on it. And he said, but by the way, you probably should know that's not a Porsche, that's a Lexus. 
Clarity is important. <laughs> Woo! It's a rough day right there. <laughs> what should we be clear about? We should be clear about what the gospel is. We should be clear about our, our responsibility in defense of the gospel. We should be clear about our role with the gospel, what God has called us to do with the gospel. Now, what I want to do is break this first chapter down into three sections for us. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to see a compacted greeting. And then in verses 6 through 10, we'll see a harsh rebuke. And then finally, in the last section of this, we're going to see a personal testimony by Paul. And so the first part I want you to see is a compacted greeting. Paul starts out this chap, this book of Galatia, and I would challenge you to go home and read the other books of uh, what Paul's greetings look like. Galatia, uh, Galatians is a very unique book in its opening. He comes in with just a, a guns blazing, fire, a fire hose pouring on them when he opens it up. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why this? Because they were questioning his authority to come and preach the gospel in the first place. And his authority had been undermined. He's saying, look, make no mistake, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself a servant here. He says, no, I am the sent one of Jesus Christ. He has sent me to you with a purpose. And he says, not of man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And he points immediately to the authority of the risen Savior. Immediately, Paul says, yes, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, but I'm not here of my own bidding. I didn't come here to do my own thing. And by the way, moms and dads understand that you are the parent of those children, but according to the will of Jesus Christ. And you're not there to do your own bidding. You're there to do his bidding. And Paul understood that, this, this authority that he has is from the resurrected Christ. And by the way, this morning, we can rejoice in the fact that Christ is risen. And we rest in that. Verses 2 and 3, of great consequence, but will not bear into them. Paul is pointing out that he's not isolated. There are people around him that are laboring with him in verse 2. He points to grace and peace. Grace and peace are almost code words for the gospel. Paul uses them over and over again in the New Testament. God gave us grace, therefore we have peace. Because of grace that came to you and I, we have peace with God. And without grace, we have no peace. A very common greeting. Then verse number four, Paul says, let me see if I can cram as much theology as possible into one verse. And so he begins to pack it in here. He says, uh, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, verse number three, who gave himself for our sins. Wow. No man took his life, he laid it down. For our sins, we were guilty with nothing to say. They were coming to take us away, but he died in our place. He took our sins on him that he might deliver us from this present evil world. By the way, this morning, you do not have to live bound to sin. The resurrected Christ says that we can have victory here in this present evil world. We do not have to live under the circumstances of our culture. We can rise above it by the grace of God. And he says, I've come in that you be delivered from this present evil world according to the will of the Father. So this was God's purpose all along. It was his plan all along. You see, understand this, that redemption is not something that God says, 
hmm, what am I going to do with all these hellions? I got an idea. I'll redeem them. No, before time began, and I don't comprehend how that works, friend, but God's work of redemption was already his plan. He was laying out his purpose all along. There's never been a time in history where anything has caught God by surprise or anything has taken God off of his purpose. But his purpose, all of history, is we see the hand of God working in every moment of history and Christ is the central figure of it all. He's the number one figure. And so we, we look at this whole picture. It is not an accident. It was by his will. It's not man's idea. This is not, do not ever let anybody try to push the idea on you. Well, everybody has the religion, and that's a religion, and this is a religion, and that's a religion. And, you know, and that's just kind of your man-made way of understanding things and getting through the world. No, it's not. God has revealed himself to us in his word and spoken to us who he is. My daughter was sharing a thing with me, and I've shared this in church, but she sent me a, a clip from one of her college classes and the philosophy of religion. And the, the quintessential conversation is that, you know, it's like having a group of blind men or blindfolded men in a room around an elephant. And that's how we un understand religion. And we all are feeling the elephant. And one person says, well, you know, God's like a tree trunk. And they've got a hold of a leg. And no, no, he's more like a rope. And he's got a hold of the tail. And well, it seems more like some kind of limb or snake, or, and he's got a hold of the, the trunk up here, and then, and then you've got all these different feelings. Well, he's very, he's like a wall. He's like a block wall. And see, and everybody is feeling out God and trying to understand him, and nobody can really get the full picture of who God is because we're all blind and unable to understand it. Now, I would agree with the analogy that we are blind and unable to understand God, that we are limited in our scope. But I would not agree with the picture if the elephant could talk. And if the elephant said, I'm an elephant, then all of that gets thrown out and everybody in the room has the equal access to the inf information. And God says, I'm the creator of everything. I spoke it all into existence. I am, I was, I always will be. And I created you for my glory. You were in sin because of your rebellion. I sent my son to redeem you. And I raised my son to justify you. And now by believing in his finished work, you can be restored to fellowship with me. And that is the picture of the whole gospel. And so Paul, in just this short verse, is unpacking all of that. By the will of God. Verse number five, he tells us, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, the whole trajectory of Scripture, the whole theme of the Bible, is the redemption of man to the glory of God. The redemption of man to the glory of God. That God's glory would be magnified throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, he would be magnified. Notice Paul gives them no attaboys here. He hasn't said, hey, thanks for all you've done for me. He hasn't said, hey, I really appreciate the, the flowers you sent last month. Thanks for the gift basket. Hey, I appreciate your faithfulness. He's done none of that. He just comes out and he says, by the way, Jesus Christ was crucified. I got my authority from him. He died for your sins. He's risen for our justification and it's for his glory. And we got through the introduction. I mean, he is on a run right now. 
I mean, he is just, boom. How many of you moms and dads ever had to come home and have a conversation like that? It's no hello, how you doing? It's, hey, y'all get in here right now and sit down. I got to talk to you. And everybody walks in like, oh, my goodness. Anybody have parents do that? Y'all looking at me like that would never happen at our house, Pastor. We call them on the carpet on occasion. Paul is calling them on the carpet. I would imagine by the time they get done with this introduction, as they're reading it, they're thinking, uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's, it's, it's a different tone here. So, verse number six, we notice that there is the end of the introduction. Paul then says in verse number six, he said, I marvel. Another phrase here is, I am astonished. I'm astonished that you're so soon removed from him. And so we enter into Paul's harsh rebuke. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't work his way into that. Now, I would not admonish you to make this your constant way of handling problems. It's often good to say, you know, I really appreciate all that you've done. And you've done a really good job. But that's probably a better way to go about it. On a regular occasion, but when God in his Holy Spirit is inspiring the text and he says, leave off the niceties, you leave off the niceties. And Paul goes right for the juggler here. He says, I'm astonished that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another. It is not another, and what he's saying, another gospel of a different kind. Another gospel of a different nature. It is not another kind of gospel that would produce life, but it is a gospel that would produce death. You picture with me this morning, I had two glasses of water on the table here. Both of them are water. And one of them, I just take simply a little bit of arsenic and sprinkle into that water. They're both still something to drink, but one produces life and one will kill you. And they had come in, and they had perverted the gospel. They had distorted the gospel. The literal word here is to distort or pervert. He said, which is not another, verse number seven, but there be some that would trouble you and would pervert the gospel. To pervert is the same root word as the word metastasize. The idea is it corrupts and it distorts and it twists until that organ is no longer what it was before and it can no longer function as it functioned before because of all of the spreading. And by the way, it doesn't stay in one place. It spreads to the whole. The idea here is it, it's, it's now not what it was in the first place. This strong rebuke comes in with a heavy hand and Paul is not done yet. He said, they would come in, they trouble you, they pervert the gospel. In verse number eight, he said, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let me say this, God has spoken all he will speak about the gospel. Let me say that again. God has spoken all that he will speak about the gospel. He's not going to give you more information about the gospel than what he's already revealed in Scripture. It is written down for us. We have it in front of us. And Paul goes so far, he says, if I come back and preach a different gospel to you, let me be accursed. If an angel from heaven reveals another gospel unto you, let him be accursed. We cannot broker any compromise with the gospel. His language is strong. But then he says in verse number 9, in case you didn't get it, 
As we said before, so say now I again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed, prepared for destruction, reserved for judgment, condemned. And I, I can't hardly express to you the weight of the word accursed. Set aside for God's wrath. Remember last week when we talked about how the wrath of God is being poured out upon us and we entered into the saving work of Christ and he took God's wrath for us? This is not only a curse against those that would pervert the gospel, but it's a prophecy about those who would pervert the gospel. Now understand what I mean. He's not just saying, let them be a curse. He's saying, if they walk out underneath the work of Jesus Christ, there is no other hope but for them to be accursed. Because they've left Christ. And when we leave Christ and we leave the gospel, there is no more saving grace to be had. Because neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He didn't say he was a way. He said he was the way. He is the only way. And so when you reject the person and work of Christ, there is no other hope but for you to stand outside of his saving grace. And we are accursed. So Paul has laid his argument down. How then were they perverting the gospel? I alluded to this in the introduction by adding to and taking away. We pervert the gospel when we add something to the gospel. And we pervert the gospel when we take something away. Generally, and I'm just going to sum this up. You can make a note there and maybe even make yourself a list. What do people add to the gospel? What do people take away from the gospel? Generally, when we talk about taking away from the gospel, what we do is we reduce who Jesus was. We reduce the person of Jesus. That his sacrifice was not sufficient. It was not all that we needed. How many of you believe this morning that Jesus paid it all? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Or we, we take apart and say, well, Jesus wasn't fully God or he didn't resurrect bodily. And we begin to toy with all these things and men get too smart for themselves. Here's the reality of it. Jesus Christ is eternally God, made flesh, sinlessly for 33 and a half years he lived upon this earth he died on a cruel cross at the hands of wicked men by the foreknowledge of God and the plan of God he was buried and rose again three days later and he is forever at the right hand of the father interceding for us and waiting for the day that he will return to get his bride Jesus never ceased to be God and never will cease to be God he did not lay aside his deity, and by the way, he never became God. He always has been and always will be eternally God. Now, if that doesn't boggle your mind, and you've got God figured out some other way, you've got too small of a God, and you don't have a God of the Bible. So, Jesus gets altered in who he is when it comes to add, adding to. Now, this is probably where we err the most. And this is what they were dealing with in that day. They were adding to the gospel. They were saying, okay, you believe Jesus, that's good, but now you need to be circumcised. You believe Jesus, that's good. You need to stop eating that meat that is not clean. 
You believe Jesus, that's good. Well, then you need to observe the Sabbath days and the holy days and the feast. And you've got to do all of these things. And then that'll make you accepted with God. And Paul is rebuking that. The balance of Galatians is going in to oppose this idea of legalism on one hand and lasciviousness on the other. That somehow or another we can have both. And by the way, legalism always produces lasciviousness. Now, what I mean by lasciviousness, I mean loose living. Because here's the thing. If I give you a list of 100 rules you've got to follow and you're okay, you'll figure out a way to check off the 100 and then live like you want to. And we do it. We do it all the time. If you think somehow or another that baptism and Lord's Supper is what's going to save you, and by doing that right, you're going to produce grace in your life, and that's what gets you to heaven, then you'll check off that list. You'll get it done, and then go live how you want to. No, the gospel is not about you living how you want to. The gospel is you coming to an awareness that you need the Savior, and you don't just need him for one point to get out of jail free card. But he is both Lord and Christ. And we surrender all. He is Lord. And so as we look at this, this message, we add to. We add to our rights and our rituals and our, our obedience. And that if I can do enough, here's the thing. If you could do enough to get to heaven, Jesus wouldn't need to have died. And I want you to see, because this is not my argument. This is Paul's argument. So in case you think it is mine, look in verse number 21 of chapter 2 very quickly. Paul says, I do not frustrate. I like that word in the, in the KJV here. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He died in vain. Righteousness can never come by the law. It always comes by grace, through faith, plus nothing. And he said they're perverting the gospel by adding to it. So... I want you to see the gospel then is not a mental recognition of a few clear statements, but it is coming to a place where we see by God's grace the truth of the gospel and we cannot unsee it. It is something that has been exposed to us and we see it starkly in front of us. The gospel is a change of the whole of who we are. And this change, um, change doesn't equal the gospel, but the gospel produces change. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Change doesn't equal the gospel, but the gospel produces change. You see, I believe a changed believer is going to want a fellowship with God's people. But fellowshipping with God's people doesn't make you a changed person. I believe that somebody who has been born again is going to want to have their heart open to the word of God and say, God, show me what needs to come out and what needs to be made right before you. Let me say this. Putting off and putting on things is not going to make you a believer. The change happens here first, and it starts on the inside, and it works its way out. So I want you to see his personal testimony. And it goes right to what our song was, verse number 13 of our text here. He said, you heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. How many of you remember a man named Stephen? Paul officiated in the stoning of one of the first deacons. As Stephen preached the gospel clearly, Paul had him executed. 
And it was not the only time that Paul wasted the church. He spent his days roaming about and finding those who believed this new way and was having them imprisoned and killed and beheaded because he was zealous for his tradition. Verse number 14 tells us, he said, I profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He was advancing and profiting in his Jews' religion. He was above the others that were his own age. He said, I shouldn't have been going as fast as I was. I was climbing the ladder, so to speak. And why was he climbing the ladder? Because he was zealous to persecute the church. And he was working well for him. But I love this. Here he is profiting and pursuing. But when you talk to the Apostle Paul, here's what would happen. Paul, what happened to you? Well, one day I was on the road to Damascus. And he would tell you a story. Somebody, hey, Paul, tell us what happened to you. Well, this one day I was on the road to Damascus. And he'd tell the story. I believe on Paul's deathbed, I think they were walking him to the execution chamber. And he looked at the fellow and he said, hey, did I ever tell you about the day I was on the road to Damascus? He was constantly telling the story of what had happened. And here on that day, you know the story, how on the road to Damascus to go and to waste the church of God, to persecute the church at Damascus, the light shone from heaven and knocked him to the ground, and it was a glorious conversion, and it was an amazing thing. And by the time Paul gets up off the ground, he didn't say, uh, who is there? He says, who art thou, Lord? He knew it was the Lord already. And he said, who is Jehovah? I am Jesus whom thou persecuted. He made it very clear to him who he was, and he was revealed the gospel directly by Jesus Christ on that day. And Paul was born again. Paul was made a new creature. Look what he says, and I, and I love the wording of this, and I hope that it doesn't pass you up. But look at verse number 15. But it pleased God. Aren't you glad it pleased God to bring the gospel to you? who set me apart or separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Now, in my King James here, the, the word me is italicized, so we could leave that out. And I love that what it would say then, called by his grace. Called by his grace, because that describes exactly what happened to you the day you got born again. You were called by his grace. He called me by his grace, and he revealed his son in me, the, the word reveal means to take the cover off. He said, why? That I should preach among the Gentiles. The, uh, and he goes, I'm going to go and preach to the nations. And he said, I didn't confer with flesh and blood, but I went on to do the work, and God taught me directly. But I want you to see this. Now, I wasn't looking for this when I was studying, but I found it, and I wanted to share it with you. Look at he says. First off, he called me by his grace. What did he do? He connected him. He was connected with Christ. He was connected with believers because he was called by his grace. Then he revealed his son in him. What is he doing? He's growing him. And then what does he do? He sends him to preach. What's Paul doing now? He's serving. It's there, folks. Connect, grow, serve. It's in the Bible. Everywhere I look, I'm going to bring it up in a couple weeks too when we get to the, the priest in the book of Hebrews. He connected Paul to a relationship with himself and with other believers. He grew Paul through his understanding of the word and his revelation of who Jesus Christ was. And then he commissioned Paul to serve. And by the way, the gospel is not just connecting. The gospel is connecting and growing and serving. It produces that whole thing. So Paul is now connected. I want you to see that Paul was well known before. But at the end of our text in verse number 22, 
He said, and I was unknown by face to the church of Judea. Paul went from being well-known to being unknown. He went from being profiting in his religion to nobody even knowing who he was. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, that's what the gospel does to us. It takes us off the throne of our life, and it puts Jesus on it. Because what ends in verse number 24? And they glorified God in me, the redemption of man to the glory of God. The redemption of man to the glory of God. Paul is saying, my calling is not of man. My message is not of man. My mission is not of man. It is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is standing with such conviction, not stubbornness. Because it was from the Lord Jesus Christ that he got his mission. So in conclusion, two things I want us to see in our, in our chapter here. First thing I want you to see is our responsibility going forward. Our responsibility with the gospel is that we persuade men and we please God. Now look what he says here, and I saw it, we read it already, verse number 10. For I, do I now persuade men or God? Now, who are you going to persuade, men or God? Men. For he says then, do I seek to please men? For if yet I please men, then I should not be the servant of Christ. Now let me say this. The first step to perverting the gospel is trying to please men and persuade God. And we take the word of God and we say, well, I'm just not sure that's exactly what he meant, that Jesus is the only way. We just believe he was a privileged way. Friend, that's denying the gospel. And adding to it, Jesus Christ is not a way, he is the way. There's no salvation outside of him. And friend, let me say this, when we allow the gospel to be perverted because we please men, we are not doing the nations a service, but we're watering down the gospel and we're adding poison to what should have given life. So we're not pleasing men, we're persuading men. Our job is to persuade men. And by the way, I don't know who's going to be saved, you don't know who's going to be saved. Let us preach and persuade and plead with men and go passionately with the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I'd be at a rescue mission or working someplace, and I'd look over, and this burly old guy would be in there, look like he'd eat me for breakfast. And I was supposed to go be the personal worker with him. And I'm like, Lord, he don't want to listen to me. My goodness, he's probably killed men my size. And I walk over and begin to preach Jesus to him, and the tears run down their face, and the gospel does a work in their heart. But here's the thing, guys. It's not us that does it. He does the work. And so we persuade men, and we please God. And let me say this to you then, lastly. When we leave the gospel, we are not leaving a denominational figure or a denominational group. When we leave the gospel, we're not leaving a set of theological structures but when we leave the gospel, I want you to see what we leave. Look with me, if you would. Verse number six. This is the beginning of Paul's rebuke again. I marvel. Are you looking at the text with me? I marvel that ye are so soon removed from the church. No. I marvel that you're so soon removed from your doctrinal structures. No. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him. When we leave the gospel, we leave Jesus. 
we leave Jesus. There is no other way. And you and I must know it and defend it and stand on it, no matter what comes. We can't alter what the Scripture says to please this world. We can persuade men, and we should do so lovingly, even unto death, if necessary. But we can't alter the gospel to make men happy. We'll persuade them, we'll please God, because we're not going to leave him. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Or thank you that your people uh, were listening this morning. And what I pray, Father, that it would sink down into our ears and our hearts. And Lord, as we've wrestled with these thoughts, as we've laid them out, what I pray, Father, that, that Lord, that if there be one under the sound of my voice today that does not know you as their Savior, that before they leave here today, they would come to know you. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, I don't know every person in this room where your eternal destination is, but I wonder this morning if you're here today and you say, Preacher, I just don't know for sure that heaven's my home. And you're sitting there in the pew, you don't know for sure that you've been, you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I would love to take the opportunity to open the word of God and show you how you can know that for sure. It would grieve my soul for you to leave the pews of this church and never know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, I'll not come to you, I'll not embarrass you, I'll not put you on the spot, but I would just have an open-handed invitation and say, would you please come and talk with us today? Maybe you need to come here and kneel while we're praying in just a moment and just pray here at the altar. Get my attention. I'll come and pray with you. Where are you at this morning? Believer, this morning, let us stand firm on the gospel. It's not up for debate. We're not going to open it up for discussion because it's been revealed. It's been settled. We're not being stubborn. We're standing on our conviction. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand to our feet this morning. If God's spoken to your heart, the piano plays, you come as the Lord would lead you this morning. If you need to come and kneel here, you can do so. If you need someone to talk with you, we'd love to do that this morning. We have people all over the room that can take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that heaven's your home. How about it this morning? you for what we've heard. We thank you for what you're doing. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just add your blessing to all that we've said and heard today, all that we've sung. Father, it would be to your glory. We'll praise you for all that you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, let, let